Hello, I'm Sinebos. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast. Now, one of the things I'm always interested in is talking to other people who are in the net zero space. And my guest today is pretty much one of the most at the forefront of net zero, Dr. Jan Rosner. Jan, I've seen him on LinkedIn. You've probably seen him too if you read stuff. He's Director of European Programs at the Regulatory Assistance Project, RAP, enough to, for me to say. It's a non-profit organisation. We'll talk about that. The reason I wanted Jan on because he commentates on lots of different things. He's been in the sort of sustainability net zero field, I think, ooh, forever. And I wanted to take his view on the state of net zero and things that are going on. So Jan, welcome to the Net Hero podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here and looking forward to a good conversation about net zero and all sorts of other things, I'm sure. All sorts of other things, absolutely. Now, I made a hash of it, but RAP, the Regulatory Assistance Project, is the EU-funded body, is that right? Can you explain what it does to the listeners? Yeah, I can. So RAP was founded about 30 years ago in the US by people who worked in regulators, energy regulators, with the idea to provide advice to people in government and regulatory agencies working on energy, how to craft and implement more effective policy and regulation on clean energy. That was sort of the mission, and that still is our mission, you know, to, to sort of design and craft new policy that accelerates the transition to clean energy um, and, and affordable energy too. That's an important part of a mission, actually. And yeah. we are partly funded by funds from the European uh, Union, that's right, some of the Horizon projects, but also philanthropy, some government grants that we get for doing um, advisory work for governments. So there's a whole range of funding pots that we get access to. Is your work purely independent? So you're not However your funding comes, the sort of analysis you do is based on independent research and you give that to whomever needs it. Is that the basis of it? Indeed. So we we never sort of ride a study funded by special interest groups, by industry groups. Yeah, we do do not represent any special interests. And in fact, we write our own work program and then try to find funding for it rather than reacting to what funders might want us to do. So our work is is wholly independent and what we say and how we say it uh, is purely based on what we think is right. You're based in Brussels, I assume. I'm based in Oxford in the UK. Oh, ah. Yes, but I commute between Brussels and Oxford, and we have people all over Europe who work in different localities. There's more than 20 people in my team, and they work uh, you know, from Iceland to uh, Budapest in Hungary. They're just scattered across Europe. <laughs> so you've got a full view of the European picture. So let's look at that now. Many people have said to me, this is the preoccupation of the wealthy West, the whole net zero thing. And that doesn't mean that people in, you know, when I went to COP in Scotland, you've probably been to a COP, I'm sure, one or two maybe. You know, I meet people from around the world. I have family from India. I've talked to colleagues and friends online in places like sub-Saharan Africa. And it's not as if they're not interested in net zero, but energy security and just basic power is still their thing. Let's talk about that. Do you think there is a kind of, I don't know, a view that net zero is for the wealthy and is a kind of do-gooders charter, whereas actually there's a whole part of the world which is just trying to get on with giving power to their people. That doesn't mean they don't care, but they're not in the same state that we're in right now in the West. 
I think that's been the perception perhaps a while back, but yeah, that was at a time when renewables, for example, were quite expensive and fossil fuels were pretty cheap and uh, supplies were plentiful. But I think that has really changed in the last sort of 15, 20 years or so with renewables becoming significantly cheaper. And yeah, just to give you an example, solar dropping by about 85% in a single decade in price. And also fossil fuels, we've just seen it in Europe, haven't we, with the war in Ukraine and the impact that had on energy prices, Mm. actually no longer that cheap, even though prices have come down now again, but really showing that relying on fossil fuels is is quite a risky strategy because prices can suddenly shoot up, triggered by geopolitical events like the war on Ukraine. So would you say that that view isn't the case anymore? Do you think that when you do your research, I mean, I don't know if it is global, it seems mainly European, but I mean, do you look at what's happening around the world and the state of kind of net zero progression? Well, we have teams in India and China. We have someone in South Africa. So we do follow what's going on in these places too. And what we find is that, in fact, there is an acceleration and there's more interest also in the global south in your clean energy technologies because they they're often cheaper than you know, replacing fossil fuel technologies with more fossil fuel technologies there's a re- been a real shift and i mean in china in particular you, you can really see that in the data you know, when you look at uh, what china builds there's still a perception that you know oh china just builds more coal yeah 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 that is still very much spread it builds more more renewables than anyone else, doesn't it? I mean, it's incredible. Indeed. And when you look at the latest data on how much renewables are being built in China, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And I'm still surprised that a lot of people don't seem to know that. You know, think, yeah, we've got to build all these solar panels and wind turbines in Europe, but what's China doing? And when you actually look at what China is doing, it is pretty impressive. Yes, they're still building more coal plants, but they're building vastly more renewables now than they ever have. And in terms of capacity additions, it's very impressive. And China builds a lot more renewables now then they they build fossil capacity so that is i think very encouraging still lots more work to be done but it's really shifted i think and we can no longer say oh net zero is just a project for the global north you know for western europe or for the us this has really changed what's the state of net zero as you see it across europe who are the winners and losers who's driving forward Uh, we've had a lot of stuff lately obviously if you're based in oxford you'll know what the climate change committee said that you know, we set the we set the bar very high in 2019. We committed to 2050, first country to do so. And yet, as they say, our homework, we're getting probably a six out of 10. We're not doing as well as we should. Sitting there, looking across Europe, who's doing well and who's not doing as well as they should on the sort of net zero progression in your view? Well, when you look at, at Europe, you will find that the countries that have decarbonized the furthest are sort of countries that are located in Scandinavia, for example. So when you look at Norway, Sweden, Finland, yeah, that is pretty impressive at the rate how they decarbonized. But of course, they also had the luxury of having a very significant hydropower resource on their doorstep. And oil and gas. And oil yeah, and gas, yeah. and, and they were wealthy countries. Yeah. But you know, the, these places have shown that it's possible to decarbonize pretty rapidly. They put in place uh, carbon taxes very early in the 90, early 1990s already. We had carbon taxation in uh, Sweden, Norway, Finland, and that has really triggered 
a shift in investment away from fossil fuels towards renewables. And actually, that goes back to the oil crisis in the 1970s, where, where there yep. were, was a lot of exposure because you know, countries that I mentioned have used a lot of oil also for heating, which has become a major subject of interest for myself and others, I think, in this in this debate around net zero. I mean, we can talk about that a little bit later, but vastly different experiences. And then you look at other countries in Europe that have done very little in the past. You know, maybe Poland is a good example here with you know, still a lot of lignite um, being very dominant in the electricity mix. But when you look at what's happening now, you actually find that uh, even in in Poland, uh, certain technologies accelerate very, very fast. Um, I'm talking rooftop solar here and heat pumps, for example, taking off in Poland at a pretty impressive speed, uh, driven by not so much climate policy, but really by the changing economics. It's a funny thing. I hate to bring up your German roots, but Germany is always seen as a kind of, you know, the clean green leader of Europe. And yet Germany burns shed loads of lignite. Germany may have stopped, you know, nuclear after Fukushima, but it imports lots of electricity from France that's generated nuclear. So where do you think the green kind of driver is? And then we'll talk about the UK in particular, but France and Germany, particularly the two big powerhouses of Europe, how do they sit in your view? Well, I mean, as you say, Germany's electricity mix is still pretty carbon intensive. And Germany kind of sits somewhere in the middle when you look at the emissions intensity per kilowatt hour per unit of electricity generated. You know, they're not one of the leaders because of the the significant share of coal, but they're also not quite as bad as Poland, for example, where you have an even more reliance on coal. Uh, France, of course, with its nuclear fleet, um, is it has a lot cleaner yeah. electricity than, than Germany. That That is the case. But then if you look at other sectors you know, that are not the electricity sector, you look at buildings, transport and industry, mm-hmm. then the picture is becoming a bit more nuanced. You know, it's not it's not quite so clear w- exactly which countries are the leaders and the laggards. I think most of the debate seems to focus on electricity yes. and i mean i've i've seen lots of people being highly critical of germany let's um put this into a bit of perspective here yes there's still a lot of lignite and we could debate how wise it was to f- accelerate the phase out of nuclear in germany mm-hmm. uh, but when you look at the share of renewables and especially solar and wind in germany you know those numbers are pretty impressive i think in the last quarter so i just saw this this morning 58 percent of electricity in germany came from renewables yes some of that is biomass and people would always point that out but the majority the vast majority of that is solar and wind and that's pretty impressive even though there's still a lot of lignite in the system which clearly needs to go and needs to be replaced you know, with other electricity generation technologies but it is i think a very significant achievement and you could say you know the germans have paid for energy transition kind of globally by you know, providing significant subsidies early on for solar and wind that brought down the costs you know, is that a policy we can replicate or would want to replicate in all places around the world probably not but we don't have to because you know innovation has actually brought costs right down Let's come to us in the UK. How would you see, you know, the criticism that was just published last week, you know, John Gummer, uh, Lord Deben, not moving fast enough, confusion in terms of policy. And yet, if you look at today's generation as we're recording this, you know, I'm looking at the national grid as I talk to you. Well, 57% is coming from renewables, of which obviously wind is the vast majority, then there's hydrogen and solar. 7% is coming from fossil fuels, of which 
basically all of it is gas, and then the rest of the mix of nuclear and biomass. So you could say, I mean, going back even a few years, that's pretty impressive, around about 60% of renewables right now. I mean, it is a windy day. But on other factors, our progress in terms of reducing demand, insulation, not so good. So how would you say the UK is doing on its net zero journey? So if you dissect a little bit where the UK has made progress and where it hasn't, what stands out is that in the electricity sector, the UK has made tremendous progress. And just to give the you know, the figures you just mentioned, the snapshot from yesterday with a very high share of renewables, when you look at the share of coal, which I think is a pretty good indicator of how clean the electricity system is in a given country. Yeah, yeah. I remember well in 2012 when the UK had almost 40% yes. of its electricity electricity generated from coal. Yeah, 10 years forward in 2022, in in just 10 years, we reduced that, I think, just below 2%. So almost phased out completely. And my understanding is that next winter, National Grid is planning to have only a single power station still running on coal that would be connected to the grid. And yeah, that is not going to provide a significant share of electricity at all. And then the next year, we're probably going to see that being phased out. So very, very significant progress. Yes, we still have about 40% or so of fossil gas generation and challenge will be to replace that partly with more renewables and partly with other forms of generation, you know, including some new nuclear, but also including some generation that might be based on hydrogen, for example. And that's that's going to be challenging to get to zero emissions there eventually. But yeah, the ambition is to achieve that at some point in the 2030s and get to get close to a zero emissions power sector. So we do well on power broadly. There's still some areas you know, where we could be going faster. The deployment rate of some of the renewables is not happening fast enough. Yeah. There are some backlogs, you know, permitting issues with wind in particular, but utility scale solar. But overall, the UK has done pretty well on electricity. Where we haven't done well is in pretty much all of the other sectors, um, I'm afraid to say. I mean, I would say, and that came through in this Committee on Climate Change report, the transport sector, I think we reached a turning point. You know, there's now enough consumer confidence, despite all of the negativity in parts of the press around electric vehicles. You know, the UK is a leading market for electric vehicles in Europe now. The adoption rate is pretty impressive. Numbers are higher than people thought they would be. And there are lots of attractive business models for EV drivers in the UK, great tariffs and things like that. So I'm actually quite positive about what happens with sort of passenger vehicles in the UK. We are doing fairly well in replacing the internal combustion engine with electric vehicles. So that's that's a good thing. But where we haven't done well in particular is buildings. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know our terrible building stock. Appalling. Really inefficient. Yeah, absolutely. We have, we are, we're the laggards in Europe when it comes to heat pump deployment. Yeah. The last country on the list in terms of how many heat pumps get installed per capita. When you look at the industry sector, yes, some progress has been made, but really we still have the bulk of the work is still to be done. So let's be honest here. So that's where we need to do more. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's the thing. We have to be realistic about what we've done. We've probably done, not, I'm not saying it's been easy, but we've done the big stuff, which is go for generation and try and change generation. I think, as you said, when we started you know, our first company in the energy space, Energy Live News in 2010, it was 46% coal, right? 46 and so in 13 years, what a difference. But I live in a 30s house and it leaks like hell and I'm trying to put insulation in. 
getting solar is difficult. I have an electric car, but, you know, the, the infrastructure for using it is not great. And I suppose we had a conference, we had the Big Zero show a couple of weeks ago, and the mayor of the West Midlands said, look, there are three areas you've got to look at, which is kind of industry, transport, and kind of people, domestic buildings. I think we've probably done quite well on sort of industry. We're sort of doing okay on transport. But for our own homes and offices and buildings, why do you think we're so behind? Is it just because of the, the nature of the housing stock in this country? It's all very quite old compared to Scandinavia, the weather we have, all of these things. Or is it just because there hasn't been that business push to try and decarbonize and find ways to do that? I think it's, there isn't a single answer. I think partly it is to do with the UK having one of the oldest housing stocks or the oldest housing stock in all of Europe. I mean, that doesn't help. And also the, the type of construction, because we never really have those really cold winters, we were never forced in the UK to insulate buildings properly. Yep. But of course, that still leaves us with a massive problem because, as you say, many of these buildings leak lots of energy and are terribly inefficient. So there is a lot of work to be done on insulation. And there's been a neglect, I would say, over the last decade or so. And we had a succession of different policies that basically failed to address this problem. You might think about the Green Deal, which was a policy introduced in 2013 and then abolished in 2015. I remember it well. Yeah, that achieved a fraction of what it was set out to do. Yes. Yeah, We had the Green Homes Grant, another policy that was uh, introduced in response to the mm -hmm. pandemic, I think, in this case, to help with economic recovery. Again, that was designed, I think, pretty poorly. Yeah. And we're still nowhere near where we were in terms of insulating buildings back in 2012, when the UK actually did fairly well. So, yes, yeah, a lack of policy ambition, I think a lack of commitment to actually do something about this, because it's hard and it's quite messy, you know, and it's expensive and mm -hmm. and, and it's not it's not quite so easy. Yeah. And it's and it's also it's personal, isn't it? Yeah, you live in Oxford, very nice, very dreamy spires, loads of old buildings. You know, parts of London, fantastic. I live somewhere where I live, literally about two hundred meters away. It's a conservation area, buildings from seventeen eighty and things like that. And then someone says, "Can we just put loads of roof of solar?" They're not going to. They wouldn't allow it. So there's a funny mix here, isn't there? Of kind of you know the whole kind of what makes Britain so lovely and the preserved old buildings, and yet that makes us so leaky and cold. Well, I mean, you know, I live in an old Victorian house myself, built in 1880, and yeah. we have added some internal wall insulation yeah same here yeah and that made such a huge difference i mean the <laughs> yeah we it's not we haven't insulated all of it yet yeah this is one of the challenges when you renovate extend a building in stages but the, you know the places where we have done it it's just just a comfort even regardless of the energy savings yeah just the comfort <laughs> surplus and i think once you get to a place where this becomes more normal for people to do yeah people invest a lot of money in UK kitchens and bathrooms every year mm. it's billions of pounds and if we just dedicate a fraction of that towards energy efficiency improvements i think it would really make a difference in terms of comfort and of course also energy and carbon so that's that's sort of one of the areas but i think the second big piece to this in addition to the yeah the, the fabric efficiency of our housing stock and how old it is is how we heat it we have relied on cheap gas yeah. for decades now and i think that served us pretty well but that we're reaching the end of that and in the context of net zero of course that has to go and the question is what can replace that and to what extent 
Do you have to bring down energy demand through insulation or you substitute the heating with renewable heating? I want to do a little bit of a quick fire with you and then I want to ask a couple of last questions before we end. So let's do some quick fire. Is hydrogen a sustainable route to net zero, particularly for for domestic properties? I think for, for large industrial, I can see hydrogen. What should we about hydrogen in, in the gas mix, you know, in, in our homes, in our boilers? Only in very specific situations. The majority of buildings, in my view, will never be heated with hydrogen in any significant quantities because, first of all, we're not going to get enough hydrogen in the timescales required because demand is huge in industry and in the power sector potentially too, in things like shipping. And secondly, it's just going to be too expensive. So it's highly unlikely that it will ever take off only in niche applications. Should we be looking at carbon capture and storage Many people say it's just pointless, it's vast uh, expense, but a lot can say that you could use it. I know that in parts of Germany, they're doing experiments with, you know, direct air capture and filling hydrogen to create e-fuels. So what's your view on carbon capture and storage and whether we should be doing it in the UK? We should be looking at it seriously, in my view. And that is because I'm concerned that we will not be able to reduce emissions fast enough by just relying on renewables. Yeah, That is not going to get us to, to net zero. At the same time, I think we ought to be careful not to over-rely on carbon capture and storage because the track record of it is actually fairly poor. You know, they've been over-promised and underdelivered. That's how I would describe it when you look at the last 30 years of carbon capture and storage. So I think looking at it seriously, trying it, making sure it works, great, but we shouldn't be building our strategy around carbon capture and storage as the main lever to reduce emissions. What's your view on nuclear being classed as sustainable as the government did in the budget? I think new nuclear is is going to have difficulties competing with other forms of electricity generation, look at the cost of wind and solar. Yeah, I think new nuclear is, is unlikely to play a very significant role. Yeah, should we phase out existing nuclear plants? I think that is not really a debate in the UK. My personal view is probably not. And EVs, are they worth it longer term? Because there's two arguments for them, which is obviously the zero carbon emissions that air produce, you know, the fact that they kind of provide a form of energy storage, all of that. But then there's a lot of stuff about where you get the lithium, the cobalt, the, the weight of the vehicles, and also, let alone, the cost of the infrastructure. So where do you sit on the full EV for transport or the mix for transport with things like sustainable e-fuels and hydrogen powered for, for, for larger transport? I think EVs are a no-brainer for for cars. For domestic. For domestic. I mean, I, just to make sure, I think we don't, we don't want to lose sight of also reducing car travel where we can. You know, public yeah. transport, walking, cycling is a much better alternative than everybody buying an EV. But where if you buy a car... An EV is the best possible option, and the resource constraints for lithium are mainly to do with how fast we can get it out of the ground. There are vast deposits of lithium. Cobalt is already getting replaced by some of the major battery manufacturers, and the the sustainability implications of the mining are significant. We should not lose sight of that. Yeah. Yep. 
but at the same time, recycling of batteries taking off now. They're, I think Glencore build a massive are building a massive recycling plan for batteries. So we're gonna see a lot more of that. And the first generation of EVs is just coming to the end of its life. So we have to wait and see how efficient, how effective that process will be. But my view is that ultimately we're gonna end up with lots of EV batteries that get recycled and we need less lithium to be mined as a result of that. And yeah, we have to address those sustainability issues head on. Other fuels, well, certainly for shipping and some types of you know, heavy uh, duty vehicles. Yeah, freight, train, e-fuels, hydrogen may well be needed. But what, th- what we're seeing, I think, is, is that you know, electricity, electric vehicles are kind of pushing into that space more and more. Yeah. Before we go, I want to get your take on it. We've had a great conversation and I think you're very valid. I've had a lot of criticism because we had a, and I don't mind it, people say, you know, you invited people like Total and Shell to your conference. You know, we had other companies as well who are doing innovative things. There seems to be, in my view, people who sit on the kind of net zero needs everything. It needs lots of renewables. It needs some hydro. It needs some biomass, some nuclear. It needs probably some form of oil and gas bridging fuel on their transition. And there are others who are just it's all renewables now, and that's the way to go. And there's this obviously this very strong kind of green-driven agenda, which is the net zero now, tomorrow. Where do you sit on that? How do you see the whole kind of narrative? Because it's, it's starting to get a little bit polarised now, where you're not net zero enough. It gets to me narrative that I've seen. So, yes, you're trying to do good, but you're not good enough. How do you see all that? I understand the sentiment that you know, net zero should happen tomorrow and we need to stop emitting given the severity already of the impacts of climate change that we are observing on a weekly basis. So I understand the sentiment. The practicalities of actually doing it are pretty complex. And we talked about some of these things, you know, how do you transition a leaky building stock to one that's much more efficient and uses zero carbon heating? That's never going to happen overnight. This takes time. And the same goes for some of the large formerly state-owned energy companies, which still operate a vast fleet of infrastructure that is fossil fuel-based. Transitioning that away and shifting investment will take some time. This is not going to happen overnight. And we see the constraints, even when there's capital and willingness to invest, getting the actual stuff be built. You know, things like permitting, planning need to be done in order to facilitate that. And that takes some time and we can speed that up. But there's some real constraints as to how fast we can go. And ultimately, we need to get everybody on board. You know, the government can only facilitate some of this, but we need the big corporates yeah. to be investing and building. And I don't think there's any way around that. Yeah, you have to have them as part of the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and what's your hope for, you know, you're a young man, you're a lot younger than me, but I worked out I'll be 82 in 2050. So I hope to be around, but you never know. But will we hit net zero by 2050? What's your view? We can. (laughs) Will we? (laughs) I'm an optimist in this. And I think because of the ability of, of human beings to be really innovative and find new ways of doing things. Yeah. My view has always been, we don't really know what exactly we're going to you know, invent and discover over the next 25 years or so. Yes. But I think we will be surprised 
what we can do. And when we look back and look at the debates that we're having today in 20 years, I think it would be a completely different perspective because look back 20 years now, who could have foreseen what has happened with electric vehicles, with solar, with wind, uh, with batteries? You know, there's so much going on. So I, I think, yes, we will we will get quite close to net zero and probably hit it. And maybe even earlier than 2050, who knows? But it's a highly fluid space this is. And I think lots more things will happen that we can't even anticipate today. By then, hopefully both of us will have insulated our homes, at least. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Jan, thank you so much for your time joining us on the Net Zero podcast. Brilliant stuff. Dr. Jan Reznow, you can find him on LinkedIn. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Sumit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to net zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.